0: I'm going to tell you a story now that I've heard a whole bunch of different forms of over the years. It's a story of um, of a monastery, a monastery that after centuries of service and compassion and sharing loving kindness with the world has fallen onto hard times. The physical structure is dilapidated and even more, there are only five aged monks remaining. With no younger novitiates being brought up. And it almost has a feeling as if they are playing out the string in this old monastery. They are ignored by the travelers that come through the forest that once used to stop for their noted beloved hospitality. Now they are seemingly dying unto themselves forgotten about. Now the abbot of this monastery In the search for some answers that might revitalize, might save this community. Knows that in the forest near where the monastery is, there is a rabbi who goes into the forest for a time of prayer and solitude who occupies a little hermitage in the past. They have encountered each other walking out there. And the abbot has always found the rabbi to be very wise. He said, I will go in search of him because maybe he'll have some answers for me. And he finds his friend, the rabbi there. And he tells him his tale of woe. And instead of giving any answer or any technique that would solve it, the rabbi merely commiserates. He says, I know the synagogue is empty these days and there's no vitality there either. And so these two old men share their sacred scriptures and they share the sacred scriptures of their tears with each other as well. And they spend time in prayer and contemplation and meditation. And they commiserate at least finding friendship in their brokenness. The time comes when the abbot is to depart back to his own community, and he recognizes he's never asked the rabbi explicitly the question, what can you tell me that will help me revitalize my community? And the rabbi just sighs. I have no advice to give you. No advice at all to give you. But I will tell you this, that one of you is the Messiah. One of you is the Messiah. And with that, they parted. And the abbot, very curious, perhaps even perplexed over what he's just heard, goes back to his monastery. And for a while, he doesn't even tell the other monks because it seems like such a ridiculous thing. Five old monks playing out the string, a building falling uh, down around them. The Messiah, one of them. But then nothing gets any better. And so he decides, I might as well tell them what the rabbi told me. One of us is the Messiah. To absolute silence that is received. And things just keep going on and keep falling apart. And the energy dims and dims and dims. Until one day, one of the monks says, how could it hurt? One of us may be the Messiah. I bet it's the abbot. The abbot who continues to come and serve us even though everything is falling apart. Yes, it must be the abbot. He is so knowledgeable and so skilled and so wise. But then another monk pipes up, no, 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 remember, it wasn't the abbot is the Messiah. One of you is the Messiah. So they start to ask other questions. Perhaps it is Brother Joseph. He is so learned in the ways of our tradition He's also really crotchety. Could he be the Messiah? Could he be the promised one? And they ask a further question. Maybe it's Brother Peter. Brother Peter is very passive, very quiet. You barely recognize that he's around until you absolutely need someone to be by your side. And then, voila, Brother Peter is there. Maybe he's the Messiah. then they stop for the moment they gasp remember the rabbi said any one of us is the messiah maybe i'm the messiah maybe you're the messiah and they start to try and dismiss it but again they've got really nothing else to hang on their hope to so little by little they start to treat each other as if one of them was really the messiah I mean, every small offering prepared of food becomes a devotional act, something given over in love to each other as they feed not just the body, but attempt to feed the soul. And the individual monks themselves, they start sweeping up around their little huts, around their selves, recognizing that maybe they're the Messiah and the Messiah shouldn't live in such a place that's so shabby. Little by little by little, every action they take is an act of utmost respect, almost bowing to each other. Every time they see each other, utmost respect and utmost loving kindness, recognizing, really starting to believe that one of us is actually the messiah. Now, springtime comes to this monastery and travelers start to pass by on the road and they see something that travelers on that road have not seen in decades, which is that there is life and laughter and even more than that energy radiating radiating out of this place, which formerly appeared to be dead. Some travelers approach this old monastery and they see that the old monks are fixing it up and that there are flower beds growing and that they are welcomed in and they are served food that really says we are glad you are here. And then those people leave and they go back to town and they tell more people and parents start bringing their children and children start bringing their parents. And some of the young men and women who have come around before start coming back and they start having inquiries. How can I serve in the same ways that you are serving each other? And months pass into that summer and the place that was formerly defunct, the place that was dilapidated, grows beautifully back up again. And is a functioning monastery, a embodiment of loving kindness and compare care and holiness in this life. All from that one curious suggestion. One of you could be. The Messiah this is a resurrection story this is an Easter story Easter by the way whatever you may have been taught Easter has very little to do with the personal immortality of the soul or how you can believe the right thing to get to an afterlife that is not what Easter is about In all of the gospel stories, what happens? Jesus comes back to his community, to the people who loved him. They can't quite deal with it for a little while, but that's the point. They come back together. That's what resurrection is about. And inspired by this, one of my favorite teachers, someone I revere, a guy named Richard Rohr, who is a Practicing, contemplative, progressive Catholic within that tradition says, inspired by these Easter stories, that the true question for our time, the most important spiritual question for our time is not. If it ever was, it's certainly not any longer. How do I get to heaven? The question is not, is there life after death? The question, he says, is there life before death? Full life, loving life, kind life, compassionate life. Not about escape clauses, but instead about entrance tickets. That's what the monks find out as they start to believe this unbelievable thing that they are told. You see, it's less, so much less about where they choose to look, because in fact, they're not looking at anything different. They're just looking at themselves and the four other monks and the dilapidated building. It's not that they are looking elsewhere. Instead, it is how They learn to look. Everything was the same as it was before until they gazed on it differently with eyes of appreciation and eyes of loving kindness and eyes of care. And it was only then that everything began to be created anew. One of our core beliefs here at Wellsprings is that the burning bush, burning underlined, is blazing everywhere. It's our restatement using that image from the Hebrew scriptures of what is often said about Unitarian Universalism, which is that we are a tradition in which revelation is what? Unsealed. It is open. It is not closed. The book is not closed. Now, I heard a rabbi talk about this many years ago that made sense to me of this story that I heard growing up as a Jew over and over again and just pay no attention to. The miracle of the burning bush is not about the bush, because, I mean, I'm staring at a bush right out here, right out here. I'm not recommending I or you go do it. We could go light that bush on fire right now. There is nothing miraculous about a burning bush. To understand what was miraculous, we have to understand that the bush, as it says, was not consumed. Someone passing by would just say, hey, burning bush, lightning strike, big deal, forget about it. It was the person who had the perception to be able to see, wow, that bush is burning and burning and burning and burning. And had the depth of appreciative power to understand that they did not have to see by rote any longer, did not have to see their lives by shorthand any longer, and had the power of apprehension, of perception, to understand that something remarkable is going on. I know that what is very true for me, and perhaps it's a problem for you, is not that I am not inspired enough. I'm inspired all the damn time. My problem is that I'm really forgetful. I had so many inspirations in my life. So many deep, deep lows and amazing highs that are moments of inspiration. And then I lose touch. Maybe you recognize that as well, too. It's the losing touch that's about what the monks can tell us. They had lost touch for years, and then they remembered to be in touch again. When we forget to be aware to the miracles, the depth, the meaning, the insight, the beauty, that is all around us, it is almost as if it is not happening. Because we're not perceiving it. When we live in this way, we go on autopilot. We go numb. We tune out life. And then wonder why we are so bored and why, quote-unquote, nothing ever happens. The point is, is that it is happening right now if, as e. e. Cummings said, the ears of our ears are awake and the eyes of our eyes are open and the heart of our heart is aware and the soul of our soul is present move from autopilot and that numbed way of living is a choice and a conscious choice each of us need to make each day to not fall back into that path of forgetfulness i mean i love this quote i'm going to read you it's by meister eckhart who was a 13th century mystic and it's very much like um like a a christian koan do you know the zen koan tradition the koans that are kind of little riddles or puzzles that get us to scratch our heads and for a moment stop To recognizing the world we think we know so that we can recognize a world that is much bigger than our conceptual mind wants to always make it. Meister Eckhart said, The eye with which I see God is the very same eye with which God sees me. Chew on that for a lifetime. The eye with which I see God is the very same eye with which God perceives me. See, if we can live in this way, then we are finding a deeper way of spirituality bigger than any dogma. Bigger than any doctrine, even bigger than any teaching, although all authentic teachings point the way to it. If we can live in this way and understand how powerful our powers of perception really are and awaken through them, we will have internalized and integrated the central core teaching of what it is to awaken. By the way, internalizing something and integrating something is very different from memorizing something. I know all kinds of people who have a lot of stuff memorized They know a lot of stuff, but their wisdom counter might be on zero because simply memorizing is not knowing in the deepest sense. To internalize and to integrate is to know something bigger than any creed, which is that right here, right now, we don't need to see in shorthand any longer. We can awaken to how big and miraculous this life is. I mean, at my bar mitzvah, my half Torah portion, my Torah portion chanted in my squeaky 13-year-old voice. I mean, God, is it cruel they do that to 13-year-old boys? I had that thing down. I memorized it. And I did not know what the hell it meant at all. <laughs> I knew it in that foreign language, but I did not know it in my own tongue. There is a world of difference between internalizing and memorizing. When we can live in that way, we can learn to let go a little bit and think that, well, if something really amazing happened to us at a point in the past, we start to worry. Will it sustain itself? The only way it sustains it sustains itself is if we choose to integrate it. Transformative change always begins with a possibility and an uncertainty. I mean, that's what I love about this monk story that I started with today. It is not a dogmatic assurance. The Messiah is one of you. Doesn't say which one. Never says which one, but a possibility. The Messiah could be one of you, is one of you, and if could be each, then we better start treating all of each other as if we are. Because that is the only way to fulfill the promise of a real loving kindness. Maybe we say no to this promise of each of our awakenings because we anesthetize ourselves. Because we are afraid, as so many adults are, and at time to time, I still am, of being made to appear the fool. Being afraid of being the vulnerable one. Being afraid in that very damaging, very adult, and still so very immature game of emotional chicken. The emotional chicken, when someone asks you how you are doing, and you respond, oh, yeah, I'm okay, even though your heart is breaking because you won't take the risk. We're the kind of person who asks the question, oh, how are you doing? And really doesn't even stay along long enough to hear the darn answer. That's that emotional chicken that so many of us as adults play. I remember the first time this really hit me. I was 15 years old at the all-boys school that the Hill School used to be up there, boarding in my first week, terrified out of my mind that... What hell kind of mistake had I made and put myself into? And I was working in the dining hall. That's what they do. They give you the grunt work the first week there, put you in the dining hall. And the path to the dining hall was blocked. And I said, I mean, I felt like uh, a flounder in Animal House. Oh, you guys playing cards? You know, remember that? Um, would, would you let me buy? Would you let me pass? And one of these guys looks up at me and says, let the faggot buy. Now, I knew myself well enough to know that I didn't hate gay people. And I was offended by what he said. But I didn't say anything. What I did is I took that and made sure that the way I acted could never be called that again for all the time I was at boarding school. Because I was so afraid of being vulnerable. You know, for some of us that still continues, even much beyond our 15 years in the 50s into the 80s, we armor our hearts. We armor our hearts against the cruelty of the world because we don't want to be one of its victims. And I understand that. It's just that all we end up doing when we armor our hearts daily and armor our hearts some more and armor our hearts some more is we make life even more cold and even more distant. There's something I put on my Facebook page last night that I know some of you have already taken a look at. And those of you my Facebook friends can go and take a look at it today if you wish. And you'll probably see it eventually anyway because it's already passed around and going very viral. It's called the top five regrets of the dying. It's from a hospice nurse who blogged about it. And the Guardian, the UK newspaper, did... A story about it the five, top five regrets of the dying this is someone who's worked for decades with the dying and she says it really comes down to five things she sees over and over again and it's all about living a life of emotional chicken staying in one's comfort zone whether that will be work or whether it will be the place of one's unhappiness or one's addiction and never having the courage to bust through that and experience real vulnerability not having said to the people we love that we love Having gone a whole lifetime unhappy and coming to the place of the end of life and making the sad realization that truly we had never lived. Such a sad thing to realize and what a gift from those who have died to let us know those who live that we can choose to live different today. First, though, we have to admit to ourselves, just like the monks had to admit to themselves that this weird thing is possible. (laughs) That if we're going to live more vulnerable, more authentic, more loving lives, that we first have to say, yes, this possibility is a real possibility. And all we need is one word. Yes. Just like in the E.E. Cummings quote, everything that is infinite, that is natural, that is Yes. Yes is birth. Yes begins possibility. Yes begins the world. Yes is assent and consent to creation that is right here and right now. And one of the reasons I love Easter is that Easter asks us the question, would we actually live as if we are responsible, as if we are responsible to the yes? That exists at the heart of each and every one of our lives. This is one of the reasons that I believe Jesus said it is accomplished from his last words on the cross. And I do not believe and especially you've heard me preach about this before. I don't think it is accomplished in that I have paid the ultimate price and all of humanity. They're all just wretched sinners and my blood washes them clean. It's not that kind of it is accomplished. I think what Jesus is saying is it's all here. Reunion is possible. If we live in the yes of our lives. What does this feel like? What does it sense like? I think Thich Han gets it really close when he says. When the wave really knows. That it's ground of being is the water. The wave overcomes all fear. And all sorrow. To know that we are connected. And that what we need. Is to be present. Thich Nhat Hanh wrote those words in an introduction to a book about Thomas Merton, who if any of you remember Thomas Merton or have read him, know that he was one of the first Western monastics to really bridge the gap between the East and West and find value in a tradition beyond his own. Well, Thomas Merton had a sense of this kind of reunion one day, not in his monastery, not out far away, but at 4th and I think Foster in downtown Louisville. I mean, there's a plaque that commemorates it. Thomas Merton had a revelation here, a revelation that we all belong to the same unity and the same life. And ultimately, there is no separation between us if we are going to grow and heal and understand the depth of who we are. He describes it this way, this moment when he was overcome in a shopping district. Think about this the next time you go to Exton Main Street, because if it was possible there, it's possible here. If we awaken, if we choose to perceive, then he said, it was if I suddenly saw the secret beauty of their hearts, the depths of their hearts. If only we could see each other that way all the time. If only everybody could realize this. But it cannot be explained. There is no way of telling people that they are all walking around shining like the sun. There's no way to tell that. It can only be embodied. Maybe there are times in our lives when we really do perceive it. If we stay honest to those moments. Those moments, the birth. Of an expectant beloved child, the death, the mindful, loving death, the letting go of someone who we were very close to the release from an addiction, the healing of an old wound that only seemed to fester all perceptions that life is so much bigger than just what we pretend it to be by constraining it into our safe categories. In all these moments, we know that our lives are waves held by the water and we can give up on the deepest addiction that there is, which is that we need to keep drowning in our own illusion of dryness. We don't need to. If we stay honest to the yes. Our great teacher Thoreau put it this way. We must learn to reawaken and to keep ourselves awake not by artificial means or mechanical aids but by an infinite expectation of the dawn which does not forsake us even in our soundest sleep you know easter like all holidays is a whole bunch of different holidays put together anyone who will say you it's only one thing is wrong the word easter comes from an old german word ostara It is a signification of the rising of the goddess of dawn, of sunrise. And so today, what I ask all of us, including myself, is if we can keep faith with the yes, keep faith with the sunrise, keep faith and faith with the dawning of the light of each of our lives. And to know that this is always a daily choice. And to know that if we do it, we are never, ever forsaken. Amen. Happy Easter. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Of God, of Easter's and sunrises happening long ago and happening this very day. May we accept the invitation that comes through the quiet knock on the door or the loud trampling of noise into our lives. Pay attention, it says. Pay attention and find our lives taking on the quality of. Of holiness, not holiness as some abstraction, but the holiness of here and now that expresses itself through the power of connection and loving kindness and the grace of being just who we are in this moment. May each of us remember the wholeness of our lives this day and all days. And practice the awakening that that wholeness calls us to. Amen.